All right, so we're off the radio now. So we've got rid of the radio folks. <laughs> and the FCC censors, for whatever yeah. that's worth. Not yeah. not professor, not that we expect you to cuss up a storm, oh, but uh, well, you are welcome I, to I, now actually if you want to. I capable of doing so as my <laughs> students do a test. But I knew that we were on radio, and I didn't want you guys to get fined in any fashion. So there is a tendency on the left to actually to, to try to, in addition to taking down the villains of American history to even take down uh, like some heroes of the Ameri- of American history, like Abraham Lincoln. And of course, you know, if uh, you know, if, if you get a full historical account of Lincoln, there are some like th- there are some things that would be like problematic in 2022 that he said. Right. But it's also true that he, yes. he was he, he was a big, uh, you know, a big factor in the freeing of the slaves. And it seems like. You know, if we're weighing people on the whole, you know, what they did for for America, you know, uh, certainly Lincoln was was more good than bad. Where do you think that um, where do you think that tendency comes from to be so critical wholesale of of America and its history on the left? Okay, well, I mean, obviously, criticism is essential. So we're not going to discount the imperative of sure, sure. But, you know, I remember back in the 70s, the sense that when you're losing, you want to punch. You want to punch when you're losing. You just want to punch out. Mm. okay? And when you're being constantly shoved backwards, it's kind of hard to get your bearings and start getting imaginative. So I don't want to psychologize it, but consider the fact that 45. I would have gladly talked about this on the radio, by the way. And don't hesitate. Don't hesitate to bring me back on radio so we can reach that audience. you know, 45 years of class war from above takes its toll on the imagination. And it's mm. also the case, and I, I'll be blunt about this, I'll make enemies when I say this. There, there have been works that were latched onto by the left as, as a way of promoting a more critical view of American history, which are, which are troubled books. And I'm going to refer mm. to the one that, you know, people on the left always say, hey, I read that in high school, it was great. Howard Zinn's. Okay, Howard Zinn's People's History is a very troublesome book because if you read it, number one, you get the idea that progressive forces always lose over and over again. Second of all, he misrepresents the likes, say, of Lincoln and FDR, and he fails to appreciate the degree to which struggles from below have dramatically and seriously transformed American life. Um, So, you know, it. At the time, it seemed like it was this liberating work. But I think there were a lot of other works at the time, works by likes of Eric Foner and others that probably offered a more an equally radical, but decidedly more progressive. And I don't want to say necessarily hopeful, but the American story has enough enough evidence for reason to hope. I used to say to my students, I'd say, I'm going to give you a whole series of days. You got to tell me what these are about. And I'd go, you know, 1776 and 1865. I mean, I'd sort of lay out the obvious and, you know, it mm. seemed like a trivial thing, but I, and they would say, well, that was this, that was it. I said, yeah, but what do they all attest to? And what they essentially attested to is, well, for a start, we created an independent nation with a Democrat, with the makings of a democratic Republic. We founded ourselves to, to end slavery and empower, uh, at least at the moments of the late 1860s, African-American men in that context. I mean, over and over again, there was a story that, transformation had occurred. And I'm sorry to say this, and I know how people feel about it, but 
quite often you pick up Howardson's book and it's just it's not just a depressing story. It's a ra- it's a rather pessimistic understanding of popular power. Mm-hmm. Jacob, if you, I want to interject no, yeah, here. <laughs> I, I was, I, that was, I was actually going to ask ask you how you felt about that. Yeah, um, uh, you know, as a history guy who did read Howard Zinn in high school and was uh, inspired by that, I don't disagree with what you're saying because mm-hmm. I, I felt like it was one of those where it uh, it led me to other what you would probably consider better works of history uh, because I think it is easy to read something like a Howard Zinn. And just walk away depressed, uh, for one thing. And uh, what you're getting at, you know, walk away without the sense of agency that people throughout time as, you know, collective forces have been able to build progress. And no, it hasn't been linear. Of course, we've gone backwards and forwards. And and I, I think sometimes that nuance is lost with that kind of interpretation of history or telling of history. And I do think that is partially what the right wing, uh, you know, has latched onto. And I see like a reaction to reaction to reaction in the literal sense of the word as, as, you know, on top of the right wing reactionaries. And I think that is something that, you know, all of us could maybe appreciate a little bit more. And um, there were a couple other things that you mentioned that I, I definitely wanted to respond to. And you, you mentioned the, the revolution, the 30s, the Civil War, and what I see from those would be moments where the social contract in this country underwent you know, a, a co- some sort of negotiation mm-hmm. or change, however you want to you know, phrase that. Uh, and so I, I 100% agree. I think those are, those are some of the most critical periods because that's where you can see – where progress is possible. I think you can see where people who, yes, may be problematic by today's standards Absolutely. fought to make a more just world. Um, and it's, you know, it's easy for us in, in hindsight, of course, to see maybe what we would have done different, what we think they should have done different, what they should have believed differently. Uh, but that doesn't take away from that story of collective struggle and, and changes to our broader social contract, which that leads me to, I guess, my next comment here, which uh, you brought up the 70s. And, you know, when I think of the 70s, I think of the triumph uh, and, you know, the return of the right and, the you know, the beginnings of a triumph of the right and, and neoliberalism more broadly. And I wonder would you consider that along the same uh, importance as these other eras we mentioned the civil war in the 30s and the revolution in terms of changes to our social contract well yes so in a, in a general sense and let's be very clear about it, it it it's one of those periods of reaction not unlike in the late 40s when capital and the right did everything they could look Let's go back. So coming out of the American Revolution, the powers that be of that time, those who were even patriots, were really fearful of that the United States was going to become a real democracy. They, they were fearful of that. Um, like scared of what maybe they had let out of the bag. Oh, absolutely. You know, what, even during the course of the revolution, there were significant figures who would write to each other and say, if we don't take charge of this, we're going to get we're going to literally 
lose all control over this. Because, for example, my hero, Thomas Paine's Common Sense, really did encourage people to believe that the revolution could truly create a democracy, not merely a republic, but a democracy. Okay, then if we go to to the time uh, in the wake of the Civil War, you know, we can define so much of this as a a racist reaction once again, over and over. It's also the case that they were seriously afraid of white working class power as much as they were of Mm. a mobilized African-American people. And then let's go to the, let's go to the 30s into the 40s. Look, in the late 40s, the, the reaction to the New Deal pursued by capital and the right, which was not easily, by the way, the forces of labor and the left were pretty well organized. So it really mm. took a hell of a lot of initiative to create the Red Scare, to force labor to purge for, of its ranks the more radical elements, the civil rights movement of its more radical elements. Now, it remained the case that labor remained a powerful force. I mean, by the mid-50s, one of every three workers was in a labor union, right? I mean, and then the promise was possible that public employee unionism would enhance the strength of working people all the more. I mean, I'm in the state, talk about irony, 1959, Wisconsin was the first state to afford, to accord, to grant work public employees the right to collectively bargain. That is, organize unions and bargain collectively. And then in 19, sorry, 19, 2010, with the election of Scott Walker and the Republican legislature, by the early 2011, they literally stripped us of our collective bargaining rights. So, of course, so, you know, the, the moment, and I want to say that if we then think about the 60s, let's not fail to consider this. Everyone thinks of the 60s as youth movements and, and black struggles for civil rights and then black power, the women's movement, gay and lesbian rights. It's also the case that workers were active on a grand scale. Strikes, okay, public employee activism inspired by the developments in New York City and Wisconsin. Um, I, I mean, it, it really was the case that the 60s shook the hell up in capitalist circles, in, in studies that were not published on the left, but literally published by writers of the New York Times. It was revealed that in interviews with with leading corporate executives, they were convinced that maybe capitalism couldn't handle democ- could not survive if democracy grew ever stronger. And so the motivation to turn to so far to the right, even by business, which was always eager to do so, was incited by popular power. Look, hmm. People can see us on YouTube, right? Yes. yes. Okay. So I, I like to, I do this occasionally. It's the show and tell, okay? Nice. <laughs> everyone thinks that Love this show was, and tell. Everyone thinks that if you hear somebody on the left mention who's old enough to remember the Trilateral Commission, which was organized by David Rockefeller, the big new Brzezinski, had a vast m- number of members of from Western Europe and Japan and the United States and the corporate and political worlds who, that included both George H.W. Bush and Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter was the favored son of the Trilateral Commission to run in 1976 and get the Democratic Party to nominate him for president and then contain the forces in the Democratic Party, especially labor. Well, this is the crisis of democracy report issued by the Trilateral Commission. And I want to make it clear that this report is not some little pamphlet. This is a major publication by New York University Press. They were proud of this report. And in this report, the central part is written by Samuel P. Huntington, who's now passed away, but he was a major figure in the Harvard government department. And what he talked about in this was that we were suffering a crisis of democracy because there was a democratic distemper, that we were suffering an excess of democracy. 
okay, that we could not afford this excess of democracy. This was a, and the Trilateral Commission was Republicans and Democrats. And in many ways, this is one of, of several initiatives because the Trilateral Commission was not the new right. It was actually to the, well, it was to the left of the new right, but it was only as far to the left as the center. These were corporate Democrats and Republicans, not new right types. And what they did is they laid out who the enemy was. They laid out public employee unionism. They laid out the civil rights, basically the civil rights movement and the poor people's movement that had begun under Martin Luther King Jr. in the late 60s. And and it was also the women's movement. It was the term they used was value oriented intellectuals, basically humanities and social science professors at the universities. And and they called it the liberal media, that all of these folks needed to somehow be contained so that democracy would not overpower the capacity of the elites to govern. And this has been underway. I mean, this this was a, a dramatic transformation. This was the end, or if you like, a declaration of war on the democratic achievements of the 30s and the 60s. And it was initiated, keep this in mind, in the Carter administration, not the Reagan administration. In 1978, Carter turned his back on both the environmental, well, not both, on the environmental movement, the consumer rights movement, and the labor movement. Doug Frazier, who was the head of the UAW and a member of the Dunlop Commission, which was a commission of management and labor folks to discuss industrial relations in the United States, was a major sort of group. He quit and sent a public letter, okay, saying, I'm not going to sit on a committee where half the, half the committee is basically pursuing class war on the rest of us. And it, that's what happened. And then Carter brought in Volcker as the head of the Federal Reserve. And, it, you know, a key word of neoliberalism is the word austerity. Who do you think used the term austerity in his speeches first? Not Reagan. It was Jimmy Carter. So mm. Carter lost to Reagan in 1980 because vast numbers of working people said, well, hell, I'm not going to vote for I'm not going to vote for Carter. What's the right. difference between Carter and Reagan? Reagan won with a very low percentage of, of, of the vote, but still enough to win. And what we've seen ever since is the Democrats have become subject to the money power, as the populists used to say. Right. I mean, why? You know, think about just think about over and over again, Carter to Clinton to Obama. And Biden seemed like he might have been pushed to the left by Bernie. But what we've seen this past year is a kind of passive presidency while the squad and other progressives were trying to get things passed in the House and the Senate. And what what happened? We talk about mansion and cinema. But don't forget Chris Coons, who was mentored by Joe Biden and is the senator from 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 Delaware. He was he sort of led the charge against the fifteen dollar minimum wage. Right. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Thank you. Thank you for for laying that out there, uh, because I think a lot of folks do um, gloss over that history. And and I think it's easy to just um, look at the state of Democrats today without thinking about how it's evolved over these last several decades. Um, Let me give you one example to play into this history question. When when Democrats run for president, yes, they make a lot of promises. They portray themselves as progressives. But I can tell you that there's always those moments when they reveal themselves. And it has to do with the representation of the of history of the past. And I'll never forget this moment. You guys, you guys may not have been. How old are you guys? 
Well, Adam's a lot older than me. I'm 25. <laughs> right. So what is he? I'll thir- be 33 this year. Yeah, a lot old. Yeah, so he's old. 33 years ago, when with you, you, you were not. Let's see. Carter was inaugurated in 1993. So you were just a little kid. You mean Clinton was inaugurated? Sorry, Clinton. Thank you, Clinton. It's all the same, you might say. Yeah, Clinton anyhow. was the first president I can remember. You know, okay. I was alive for for the first, for Daddy Bush, but I, I can remember Clinton, of course. Well, I, I've written about this a few times because I'll never forget this. This was like an incredible moment when I heard what he did. So, Bill Clinton had a middle has a middle name. What's his middle name? Let's see if you remember. It's, he's uh, William Jefferson Clinton. You got it, Is William Jefferson correct? Clinton. And William Jefferson Clinton decided that given his middle name and given the history of the Democratic Party that he was now the head of, as he was going to go to D.C. to be inaugurated, that he would reenact Jefferson's journey from Monticello in Virginia to Washington, D.C. for the inauguration. But he wasn't going to ride a horse or a donkey or anything like that. He was going to ride on a bus. So he makes this this journey. And when he was running for president, he kept saying, you know, we need change in America. We need change. This was his big thing. I think hope and change were the two words he used a lot. The boy from hope, you know, the man from hope, and he's going to bring change. So now we're at the inauguration, and he's giving the speech. And there's that moment in the speech. And I, I didn't watch it on TV. I was not a, I was not a fan of Clinton. I voted for him because who else are you going to vote for? Okay. And I'm, I'm driving into the university. I've got it on the radio. And he says, as, as Thomas Jefferson said, in every generation, Americans need change. A moment comes where they need change. And I thought, uh-oh, it's all over. Because that's not what Jefferson said. No. <laughs> what Jefferson said was, in every generation, Americans will need some rebellion. In other words, movement from mm-hmm. the bottom up. I mean, for all of Jefferson's elitism as a slaveholder, okay, and as much as he actually had very little respect for for urban working men and women, okay, preferred yeoman farmers. The fact was that he understood the degree to which you've got to defend democracy by fighting for it. So, and I thought, well, guess what? And then guess what he does, Clinton? Okay, here's what he did. The first thing he did when he was in the Oval Office, not a lot of people know about this, is he made a phone call to Richard Nixon because he wanted to talk foreign policy with Richard Nixon. Oh, well and good. Okay, fine. But then think about he had promised to pursue national health care. And what did he do? He appointed Hillary Clinton to chair a commission to explore the possibilities of how to create a national health care system. And it, it was a private. Every single meeting they had was held in private. It was not. a. And in the meantime, in the meantime, what ends up happening? The insurance companies, the you know the pharmaceutical companies, mm-hmm. the Republicans, they mobilize. They're ready. Well, there was no mobilization of the American people in favor of what they've already voted for. OK, right. and I can give you other examples. And we because we know that the Clinton years were truly the high point of neoliberalism. OK, I mean, it was like the deregulation of the communications industry, the uh, mass incarceration, the um, ending of. The program that goes back to the New Deal, aid to families with dependent children. Um, right. I mean, over and over Wall again. Street deregulation. The Wall Street deregulation. I mean, it's over and right. over again. Some of it had already been forecast by Carter and, and Reagan, but it was like a, it was like a holiday time for neoliberalism. And oh, and not to mention. 
back in 1933, FDR and the New Dealers had separated uh, investment banks and commercial banks so that people's secu- deposits would be secure, that they couldn't be subject to risky investments and, and playfulness by bankers. Well, the Graham Rudman Act of the late night, I think it was Graham Rudman, um, was, it was a bipartisan thing that Rubin and his ilk, you know, the Treasury Secretary, then followed by Sus, not Susan, what's his name? Um, you know, Summers, thank you. I'm talking to myself. Here. Larry Summers, yeah. Larry Summers, right? I mean, he signs into law, which enables the risk takers and the deposit holder banks to coalesce and, and basically pave the way for the financial crises that were to follow later, along with a host of other things that Democrats right. allowed to happen. Republicans took part in. My point is that at that key moment when he's being nominated, not nominated, inaugurated, he revealed himself by his sense of history. Now, did he know that he was misquoting? Sure, he did. He's a smart guy. He knew what he was doing. But one of the things that was revealed, which was revealed by all of these Democrats, not surprisingly Republicans, too, but the Democrats we would have hoped for, for more from, is that they were, are essentially afraid of their fellow citizens. They refuse yes. to engage and call upon their fellow citizens to become directly involved in pushing them forward. You know, FDR did that over and over again, regularly invited that kind of thing. Um, the next right. major figure who did that in, at the presidential level, um, seriously speaking, was uh, if he had won the election was Bernie Sanders. Um, the, not me, us. organizer in chief, organizer in chief, not me, us. Think of that. It wasn't right. only the Christian idea, say, of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It was also the case of I can't do this by myself. If I get elected, you're going to have to be outside the window demanding the enactment of the things that you will have voted for. And, and you know, this telling of history is really interesting when you compare it to a popular understanding because I have people in my family who voted for Jimmy Carter who cite Jimmy Carter as a reason that they are not sympathetic to the left. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, he was like the first, like, uh, or, or, or the most... I don't know if maybe you would even call him the first neoliberal president. Oh, he was. Uh, Absolutely the first I, I, neoliberal. You know, yes. And, and it, it's just not, you know, their understanding, it, it's just because he he's blue. He's on the blue team. He was he had a D next to his name, and so he's that makes him the left. And so his presidency and the damage that it caused is is therefore an indictment on the left, uh, despite the fact despite everything that you laid out right here. It was definitely uh, not on as, the left. <laughs> right, exactly. As someone who I will admit I am on the left, I do not claim him. Yeah, <laughs> he's I mean, not he's on a my nice team. Guy. He was not like, on my team. Yeah, he um, seems like a nice guy, he, especially since he's left the presidency. But like, as far as his presidency, it's not what I would want. <laughs> but I, I think it's so important what you just laid out there because. Um, it has been a bipartisan destruction of public sector, of um, social services, of all of those achievements that were fought so hard, uh, that we fought so hard for in the 30s in the New Deal era. And we've just, you know, my entire lifetime, Jacob's entire lifetime has been this period of retreat by and large, or, yeah. uh, you know, Democrats essentially offer up nothing more than 
management of the status quo, uh, yeah. management of a declining status quo, uh, yeah. as opposed to Republicans who promise to make it worse. Um, <laughs> right. You know, that's been really the political possibilities throughout our lifetimes. And so uh, not to get down the Bernie rabbit hole, but that was, uh, you know, at least a a breath of fresh air politically in terms of electoral politics that uh, there was a, a both a conception of collective politics yes, of right. not me us yeah uh on top of the actual policies uh that he discussed from healthcare to you know any any number of economic and social issues yeah i do want to say i do want to say that i do have a i do have a, i voted for bernie I've, I've admired bernie i would have voted for him ever since i first heard about him in the 1980s but i have one criticism of bernie because since we've been talking about the use and abuse of history is that Bernie, in both in 2015, 16, and then again in the 2019, 20 primaries, at some point went national on YouTube to talk about the meaning of democratic socialism. I wish he had never bothered to use the term. He it had spent half his time talking about what it meant versus just saying, I'm an FDR Democrat, period. Um, right. But the worst part is he'd have on his website, like, a, rec- a recollection of, the, of an economic bill of rights that FDR proposed, of workers' rights that were part of the National Labor Relations Act. He would have on his website historical references. But when he would go before the American people on de- in debates with Hillary or with the clown car of Democrats that he had to suffer, like Klobuchar and others, <laughs> what did he do? He, he never even brought up Franklin Roosevelt, whereas the great mm. Eugene Debs, the great labor leader and socialist Eugene Debs, back at, when he had to appear in court to defend himself, and that basically the other Democrats turned it into a courtroom and they said to him, you want to you bankrupt the United States when he mentioned something like Medicare for all. What Bernie should have done is he should have called into the room the memory, the image of FDR and said, what kind of Democrats are you? You sound more mm. like Republicans of the 1920s than you do. Democrats of the late 20th of the late mid to late 20th century. I stand with FDR, who in 1935, when he signed into law, the Social Security Act, wanted it to include health care, but was blocked from doing so by the American Medical Association, by many a Republican and by all too many Southern Democrats in Congress who were convinced that if they included national health care, Southern hospitals would have to desegregate. Right. And I, and I think that that speaks to we had we had a question um, in, in the chat. Uh, how does the right profit from controlling the history narrative? And I, I, and I think that speaks to it because history is, um, you know, like uh, uh, the, the Michael Brooks show. They had a segment called History is a Weapon, I, I believe, or, or maybe that's the Antifada. I can't I can't recall. But one one of those shows had a segment called History is a Weapon. And I think that that it, it is a very powerful weapon in talking about in in talking to a people, um, you know, and, and, and so maybe you can kind of expand on that a little bit. Like, why is it that that taking hold of like what good does it do justice and democracy minded people to take hold of history and to call FDR into the room and call the, 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 the history of struggles in the United States. What is it? What good does it do us to call that into the room when we're talking to okay. the Americans? Well, I can always fall back on Orwell. Those who control 
the present control the past. Those who control the past control the present. What, it, what Orwell was getting at is the fact that, is that, and I'll now refer to, I, I can't remember who said it, but I'll, I'll basically say, history af- affords us a sense of who we are, what it, ta- what, what it demands of us, and moreover, it defines our possibilities, our right. imagination, okay? In other words, human struggles matter. Look, one refers over their shoulder to the past, Right. Rather than uh, the way things are is the way it has to be, which becomes a kind right. of it's a, it's a mantra. Ah, uh, the way things are is the way it has to be, right? Over and over again. That's the messages that are communicated uh, in the media, in in all too many advertisements, and and it, it, over and over again. But what history does, it shatters the inevitability of the past having become the way it became the present, and it shatters the inevitability that the way things are is the way it has to be. It reminds us. Basically, as you said earlier, of the uh, that human agency matters, right? It mm. does matter. Um, you know, there's this. There was this Henry Demers Lloyd. He was a progressive journalist and and activist around 1900. And I, there was a line I came across of his, which I constantly fall back on. It. It's like, you know, if you ask people, you know. What's the price of liberty? And they say eternal vigilance. You got to be protective of, of your rights. But Henry Demers Lloyd said, well, actually, democracy rights demands not only vigilance, it also demands action and struggle because the rights that were afforded to us by our, he used the, the word fathers, we should say, the rights afforded to us by our fathers and mothers, our grandmothers and grandfathers, our great grandparents. I'm thinking now the 30s and and for many young people today, the 60s. Those rights can only be defended if we fight and assure new rights for our children. Hmm. The status quo is always a dead end. Absolutely. On that note, Jacob, if it's okay, I'd like to just uh, mention... James Lowen, uh, who wrote Lies My Teacher Told Me, and I think that could be a book perhaps subject to the same kind of you know criticism uh, that you and others might have of Zen's work. But uh, you know he passed away last year, and I was reading in Rethinking Schools, which is published up, up in your area, up in Milwaukee, I believe. Yes, it is, Milwaukee, right. Yeah, and uh, they had a, a quote from Lowen that I just really, really love and, and wanted to throw out there, maybe you know get some feedback from you about – uh, James Lewin once said, telling the truth about the past helps cause justice in the present. Achieving justice in the present helps us tell the truth about the past. And, uh, you know, I was wondering if you could maybe expand on yeah, that well, dynamic. I, I, and... I don't know if I can expand effectively on it. And I and I will tell you that when the book, just as in with People's History, when Lowen's first book, What Lies My Teacher Told Me, you know, deconstructing there's a real role for deconstruction. I, I, I don't want it to be like that's a very attractive title for a teenager. Uh, yes. you know, a, a, <laughs> well, a look, budding I, radical teenager yeah, who's yeah. starting to question, I'm you know, gonna, all the narratives. Confess, I'm going to tell you a little story, which I told my students. I actually I wrote a my hero is Thomas Paine goes all the way back to when I was 10 years old at my grandparents apartment. I'll make the longer story short and tell you at my grandparents apartment. <laughs> There were times when my grandparents wanted me to leave the room when they were talking to my parents. 
and they would signal it in various ways. And what I would do is I would wander their apartment as if I was in the galleries of a museum. It's a much longer story. I'm keeping it brief. And I would always end up at the same spot in the back of the dining room in my grandparents' apartment. Uh, my grandfather was a trial lawyer in New York City, but at home he kept his, his personal library. And I came across a book. This isn't the exact copy. I found this in a used bookstore because it meant so much to my life. Can you read that? Let me see if I can. We have Thomas Paine. Author. It says author of the Declaration of Independence. Right. So here's a guy who was so infatuated with Thomas Paine. This is back in the 1930s or 40s, who decided he he was convinced it was really Thomas Paine and not Thomas Jefferson who wrote the Declaration. He wrote a whole (laughs) book on it. Now, I'm 10 years old. And I see this book has a red cover in amongst all the dark covers of my grandfather's bookshelves. And I grabbed it and I said, aha, my teachers are all (laughs) wrong. (laughs) And I made Thomas Paine my hero just by the fact that it would reveal my teachers to be liars. Right. And so (laughs) so here I am now a pretty well known historian. But for much of my life, I got I never got 100 on an American revolutionary history test because I constantly would right in in a defiant manner. It was Thomas Paine who authored the Declaration of Independence. (laughs) So, yeah, I fully appreciate that, you know, young people, even older folks can first feel unsettled, but then liberated by the Mm. revelations. But those those revelations don't lead one to understand the imperative of agency. It It only teaches one the necessary rule of skepticism. That's what it and I think that's that's the key is is being able to connect that to, yes, be skeptical and and deconstruct some of the dominant narratives. But then what's next? What does that lead you to? And, and I think that's what you're speaking to. Yeah. And look, as as Jacob will tell you, having read this stuff, I mean, I've made it my life's work for many years now to try to. To not simply deconstruct, but to try to begin the, the reconstruction, I'll be honest, of an American narrative. To the point where I can even be obnoxious about it. So, for example, I don't reject the idea of American exceptionalism. I have a completely alternative understanding of it. And my understanding of American exceptionalism is that, and this comes from, I trained in Latin American studies. I spent a good part of the 1980s into the 90s writing books about British Marxists who I greatly admired and who really taught me to rethink history. Uh, E.P. Thompson, Eric Hobsbawm, and others. And I also became friends with them and the executor of one of their literary estates. And I can tell you that I'm convinced that what really is extraordinary about the American story is the radicalism that characterizes the story. And I'll go back. Look, for all of the sins of Thomas Jefferson, his pen found it, found its way to write life, liberty and the, the promise, the American promise of equality and mm. life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And I want to yeah. say that, you know, people scorn that because look at look at the fact that they didn't bring an end to slavery, but they did over time in the north. Let's be clear about that. But I always told I always had my students read Frederick Douglass. I assume you both know of Frederick Douglass, the great 19th century African-American who escaped slavery, became the greatest orator of the 19th century and a leading abolitionist. And he wrote a he wrote a he wrote and he delivered a what I would call a sermon, but he gave this talk on July 4th weekend of 1852, I believe it was. Yeah. And it was titled. That's amazing. Anyone who hasn't checked it out, mm-hmm. you should. What to the slave is the 4th of July, right? And I would get, tell right. my students, your weekend assignment is to read this 
sermon. He gave it in a in a abolitionist church, so I figured you could call it a sermon. And I could always tell who read it all the way through. They'd come yes, in on Monday. You can. I came in. So I come in on Monday and I told them they have to just one question. They don't have to write an essay about it, though. It would help if they could explain themselves in, in written form. Is Douglas a patriot or an antagonist to the United States? Hmm. And they would all come in and say, well, not all, you know, 75 percent would come in and say an antagonist, <laughs> because look at how he attacked, attacked, attacked. And, I, mm. and then the other 25 percent, and maybe I'm exaggerating the 25 percent, they would say a patriot, because when push came to shove at the end, he said he had not given up hope that the American promise was so powerful a force that there was still dynamic hope for the United States. And, you know, and and it was simple. It wasn't like I was challenging their intellects. There were some who read it all the way through and there were some who didn't. But I would tell people, you know, if Frederick Douglass could find it in himself in the midst of the antebellum period, in the midst of slavery, himself having to 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 fight to get free and to to escape bondage. And yet he and he came north and, you know, continued to suffer any number of, of racist moments. I mean, it's not like he came north to this you know, utopian, in, you know, <laughs> north. Right, right. But he found it. And I'm, and I think that, you know, that's the case. And when those slaves escaped those plantations, they didn't come north just to find an escape. They came north and they were volunteering for service in the Union Army, even if it just meant mm. digging ditches, you know, for trenches. But many of them ended up, you know, wearing the uniform. I mean, it's those are the kinds of things in the 1930 in during World War Two. There was there were those who worried that African-Americans would not serve in the U.S. military. But African-Americans were fighting for what they called the double V, the double victory. They were going to defeat fascism overseas and they were going to defeat fascism at home because they believed the promise was that powerful. Japanese-Americans, look, my best friend who passed away, he was older than I, passed away several years ago. His father was in the, in the U.S. Army, Japanese-American, in the U.S. Army while his son, my dear friend, was born in an internment camp in Arkansas. And, wow. you know, and my friend and his father would when I, we would talk, he would say he would say there's no way we were going to allow racists to define us as anything but American. So, yes, there were those who refused to serve, but twenty two thousand did serve. And in fact, the, the, the unit, the 40, 442nd was the most decorated combat unit in World War Two of Japanese, purely Japanese American soldiers. So, you know, there's a story there that we need to remind people of. When I talk about FDR, it's like a knee jerk thing. I'll get people that come first. They say, oh, but he didn't, you know, you know, he, he didn't he didn't fight to end Southern se- segregation. But they don't mm-hmm. realize that the initial the New Deal initiatives, the bills that came, were presented by the New Dealers did not themselves contain segregation. It was the Southern. Sorry, I'm picking on you Alabamans with your ancestries, but it's the case. Southern Democrats were absolutely Mm -hmm. they had a good nose for what was going to threaten segregation. So when Social Security came up, well, they couldn't they couldn't do it on race because the 14th Amendment prohibited that. But they could on occupation. They excluded household workers and labor Mm -hmm. and farm workers, similarly with the National Labor Relations Act. But the story remains that African-Americans were active and energetic unionists in the CIO industrial unions. Yeah. Right. I mean. Right. And in fact, the CIO championed interracial unionism. I could go on and, and that's on something with this kind of stuff. 
Well, yeah, I, yeah, and and we could too, of course. And but <laughs> I I love that you kind of left off there because that's been a frequent uh, topic of our our show is discussing the ways in which unionism and building a labor movement uh, can break through some of the racial barriers and other barriers that we have in our society that have been instilled in us uh, to prevent that very thing of class consciousness and class solidarity. And and we see that with unions across the country now that have uh, interracial membership. And, and we saw it, you know, in these periods that, that you've written so much about uh, where perhaps one of the only, you know, maybe the only integrated functions in town in mm-hmm. some places were the early union meetings. Right. Uh, and we, we mentioned last week, we interviewed the Republican author of this quote unquote anti-riot bill that's been going, you know, um, some versions of this is happening all over the country. Yes. And, um, you know, that's something that I wanted to, to harken back to is in Gaston, Alabama and, and the ways in which, uh, violent company thugs and others had, had suppressed not just the union drive, but the interracial aspect mm-hmm. of the union drive and, and seeing that threat. And, and, and I'll, one last thing and I'll shut up here. Um, to, to throw back to, to something you mentioned earlier in terms of the 60s and the ways in which we kind of look at the 60s, um, I think it's too often that folks think of the 60s like you described in that way of like the, the youth movement, there's, there's the black power movement, the women's rights movement, as if they are not completely overlapping with mm. the labor movement. And, you know, it's working class people who are – in these other movements as well. Uh, I mean, that's not 100%, of course, um, but it's not as if all of these different struggles and these different movements are all in their own silos. There's tremendous overlap there, and it's you know it's certainly obvious to me that justice for workers means racial justice mm. uh, yeah. and vice yeah. versa. Yeah, I mean, right. I'll, I'll give one more historical yeah. reference, and then you can shut me up, okay? <laughs> and, and that is that... The reason, the reason that the that Southern Capital and the Southern Democratic Party were so utterly hostile to labor and were prepared to do, you know, whatever it took to block labor organizers coming south in the late 1940s op- as part of Operation Dixie is they knew because Operation Dixie came out of the CIO. And for all of the racism mm-hmm. may well, that, that did prevail in many quarters of the labor movement, more so perhaps in the American Federation of Labor. But don't forget the American Federation of Labor was also the labor federation that gave a home to the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, A. Philip Randolph's right. union. And Randolph refused to leave the AFL for the CIO because he felt the AFL had opened up to, to, to black workers. But anyhow, it was the CIO that pursued Operation Dixie. Now, why were they so afraid? Because Operation Dixie, as a CIO drive, was an interracialist drive. And they knew that the labor movement would literally bring it would literally force an end to segregation far ahead of what they knew would ultimately be the end of segregation. I mean, they knew it was coming and they were going to hold on as long as they could. OK. Right. Uh, Professor K, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. We could I'm sure that we could continue talking to you for another hour. Or two. I've, been, <laughs> I've really I'm enjoyed the conversation for the whole day, man. <laughs> <laughs> I would be down. But yeah, yeah, uh, I, I, I do hope that we can have you on again, though. I, I've really yes, enjoyed it. Absolutely. Guaranteed. Um, Guaranteed. So, yeah, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You guys look. Solidarity is the key word. OK, never fail to think of that one. OK.
Absolutely. Will do. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. All right, folks. uh, Next up, we are going to bring on Hayden Wright. Uh, Hayden is... Y'all know Hayden. We got her in the Zoom. Uh, She should be coming on right now, I believe. So maybe uh, here in just a moment. Yeah, so uh, y'all know Hayden, but in in case you need an introduction, Hayden Wright is president of UMWA Auxiliaries in... uh, in middle Alabama with uh, the strike going on down there in Brookwood. Um, She is an English teacher, I believe an English teacher, and uh, she's the wife of a coal miner down there. So Hayden, I appreciate your time. I know that y'all are incredibly busy, but uh, we appreciate your time willing to talk to us. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here today with y'all. So um, the the first thing, uh, just just a little bit of, I guess... um, personal intrigue how before we get into the more serious parts of the strike how was y'all's trip to dc how did you feel like y'all were received has there been any any movement since then um you know just just tell us about that and and what's happened since um well going to dc i think the trip overall went really well um senator warren senator bernie sanders were very open wanted to know what was going on here in alabama um Bernie Sanders actually asked the question, why does Alabama continue to vote against its own interests? Why do they keep electing Republicans into office who are working against them? So we had some good discourse with that on why we think that does continue to happen here. Um, And then, of course, we had the opposite side of the coin of our own representative from Alabama, um, Tommy Tuberville, coming into the hearing um, stayed in the corner, didn't make eye contact or attempt to talk with any of us, speak to us before the hearing began, and then to take a seat and read from the Warrior Met Cole Facts page, which a lot of what he was reading had already actually been removed because it was inaccurate. Obviously, you might want to hire some people to do his research a little bit better because <laughs> we know he's not doing his it. Lord on knows his own. he. Yeah, I was about to say we know he's not doing it on his own. Yeah, of course not. So, um, personally, I wasn't surprised by a statement. The offer that Cecil gave still stands for the rest of us. We would love to see him in Brookwood. He can come out and talk to us there. As long as he did expect a warm welcome. Because I don't think that's right. The right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I did. I did want to correct uh, the record just a second. I spread a little bit of misinformation on accident um, when I first talked about talked about y'all's trip to DC. I it had seemed to me from the conversation on Twitter that that Braxton did not shake his hand at when he when the senator like went to shake his hand as he was as he was leaving um but when i actually went back and watched it the the full thing later he did and so i did want to correct that um and and which is uh, which even goes further to show how much kinder a man braxton is uh than i (laughs) (laughs) I and certainly kinder than because when he uh, walked up i told braxton loudly do not shake his hand (laughs) <laughs> and he turned people next to me and he was like he just spit in all of our face so after mm-hmm. that he didn't make eye contact with me at all I guess he knew what would happen there so right. Braxton is a lot nicer of a person than certainly I am yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah so you know the um, 
I I couldn't remember when we talked about it originally if that was even the case about what the what he was reading from the Warrior Met press team. Um, but it, but it sounds like there there is some content. Uh, you know some contention about the actual factual nature of those numbers and and even the number that he cited was like $97,000 a year and even if that was true you know $97,000 for you know 7 day weeks 10 hour days is that's not a whole lot of money um you know i would make more than $97,000 a year if i worked you know 710s uh, all year so um uh, but w- w- did y'all see any support at all um, in in public or uh, personally from anyone in Alabama or any Republican across the country? Um, we have not. I will say after the hearing, I actually got a message on Twitter and was like, hey, I'm from Alabama and we knew that you were here and I missed you. Are you still in town? And we were like, yeah, we're down the road. We're eating. And actually it was a couple of guys that are actually there working for other senators that are from Alabama. They actually came and found us, gave us their card. And we're like, we support you. We're so glad you're here. This needs to be said. People need to know that in Alabama, this is happening. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty cool to see that they reached out and they came out of their way to come and talk to us when they were there as staffers for other senators that couldn't attend the hearing because they had other meetings going on. Um, but as far as in Alabama, if you're asking, like, if Kay Ivey's come out or anything like that, um, no. Has there been any response at all? Because I have contacted personally every single federal legislator um, from the Alabama delegation and uh, – as well as I believe the governor's office and the lieutenant governor and the attorney general and all of them have either not responded or said I don't get involved in in private matters, which we know is bogus. Ha, ha, has there even even been a response to your union or to you or to any of the members from any of these people? No, and I think you can even see that like on Twitter. There's been several times when they've commented, I've posted back like, hey, what about this is going on in your own state? Why don't you address it? And you get no mm-hmm. response. Um, right. The big one I can think of here lately is like Katie Britt posting the pictures online of herself with the caravan that came through that are protesting and blocking roads for vaccine mandate. Mm-hmm. Sign was misspelled <laughs> that one. And she posted everywhere like she's proud of it. And I'm like, but you're literally trying mm-hmm. to pass bills in your own state that makes those illegal. And you're coming out and supporting workers that have been on strike for over a almost a year now in your state. Not Canada, but Tuscaloosa County. Right. Like but you can't come here. You don't support workers. Mm -hmm. That's not what's happening. You're just trying to push an agenda that you think that some voters will resonate with. That's all she's doing. Right, right. How is um how is the membership taking the lack of response from Republicans in the state. You know, I I know, obviously, you know, there's a certain, um, you know, stereotypes are that way for a reason. And, you know, Alabama coal miners, there there are, I I remember walking the picket lines with people in Trump hats, right? What is the, what would you say is the general feel among those people at these politicians 
you know, like Trump or or like any other Republican elected official in the state um, that have been totally silent on this? I would say for at least our state politicians that haven't come out, people are disgusted. I think at the beginning it was kind of like shock, like what's going on to where now you've gone from being angry to just being absolutely disgusted with it. Um, I can tell you when um, Larry Spencer, which is their national vice president, pulled his phone out because when he was campaigning, Tommy Tuberville came to the UMWA and asked, asked them to support them. He was, they were like, of course, wow. we can't we're, Doug Jones has always set up for us. We're going to keep. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, that's okay. I'm always here to support you. This is my personal cell phone number. If you need anything, call me. This has been my number for 10 years. You just have to call me. Um, guess what number's been disconnected? Wow. Guess who hasn't received any response to the letter that he actually wrote asking why he said those things, why he hasn't come out to support workers. So mm-hmm. I can tell you at the rally, there was a lot of chance of vote him out and some other expletives on where he could go. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and I could imagine uh, the, the I recall I remember uh, Larry Spencer um, putting that letter out and and he did not um, you know he didn't he didn't mince words in that and it, it was uh, it was pretty good I'm seeing I'm seeing if I can find that but uh, in his letter from al.com article about it Spencer and- said Tupperville's comments reflected only the company's stance regarding the strike which really struck me because immediately before he gave the company line on the strike he said that we shouldn't weigh in at all and, then, and then basically like oh well you know I mean if I'm gonna weigh in of course it's gonna be for the boss I mean come on well what got me my favorite part was when he said well if we were going to have this hearing it should have been a part of the committee that I'm on Okay, so right. if you want to so do it, you yeah. heard on, why aren't we up here when you're on that committee? I mean, it made you look right. like a bumbling idiot, you know, like we know he is, but I was like, okay, so you're openly admitting that, okay, we should have heard this at my committee, but I don't really care about it because I don't support workers, so we're not going to hear it there. But shame right. on you right. for giving workers a voice. Right. Uh, and just so everyone knows, I did put a link to the PayPal for the UMWA Strike Pantry in the Facebook and YouTube comments. So if you've never donated before or it's been a while since you've uh, contributed, please see if you can spare a few bucks uh, to support these folks. Um, they have been on strike since April 1st, correct? Yes. So that is a long time to be on strike, mm-hmm. and, and it's really – you know, it's been inspiring to see a lot of folks from across the labor movement, even across the world, uh, chip mm-hmm. in and express solidarity to try to support uh, this mind, the mind strike and, and the families that are involved. But uh, if you if you can find it in your heart and in your wallet to give just, a you know, whatever you can. Right. I, I know that would be really appreciated. So how what about, you know, um what about negotiations? How have there has there been any update at all since the hearing from the company? Um, yes, I believe we were actually meeting this week. Um, there had been some movement, not to where there's a tentative agreement or anything yet. Mm-hmm. There had been some movement. Um, you know, about a month ago, you had the head of BlackRock put out that statement that companies should support their workers and. 
all of that. Of course, you know, words are empty unless you actually take actions to make sure that's happening. Um, that's one thing we were in DC for is actually talking about how private equity groups like BlackRock, Apollo, Vanguard, they come in and they swoop up companies that file for bankruptcy that they know are actually profitable. And then they bleed them dry. They exploit families, they exploit the workers, and they exploit the communities. And so that's what we see happening here. So those company statements that come out, they're only trying to protect their capital interests, their investments. Unless you're actually going to be willing to say that we're going to take some responsibility for this and we're going to force these people that we hold massive shares in to come to the table and treat workers fairly. I really don't care about your empty words that you put out in a letter. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, how are uh, how, how is the membership doing uh, almost a year on strike? Um, you know, how, how's everybody holding up? How's the morale? And everything? Um, I think the morale is pretty high right now. Uh, being on strike is hard. Any time you go on strike, it's hard, especially when you've been on strike in a year. And you have to think a lot of our membership are younger people with families. So a lot have had to take on, you know, part-time jobs. Women that previously didn't work have had to go back into the workforce. So it's been a big shift for families just in your daily living structure. Because when you're used to being having a spouse that's gone 12 hours a day, seven days a week, to try to shift back and kind of reform your family structure while on strike, just that is difficult. Mm. But then we're actually luckier than most would be. I mean, the UNWA has increased strike pay as the strike has progressed. It's $800 every two weeks, which still $16 a month. That's a huge help. The donation checks that people sent to international, that's a huge help. But we have to remember that some workers, that's their whole income for the month. So while we are struggling and it is hard, this is a struggle that a lot of people have dealt with forever. And I think that that's eye-opening to see how hard it is to survive on that amount. I think that's also something that's kind of shifted people's perspective on things like increasing the minimum wage, Mm. on really helping to organize in other places because you can't support a family on that, not and live an actual life. You have no livelihood. So I think that's been eye-opening too. Um, For my own family, I know there's been times you just have to decide which bills are going to get paid and, which ones aren't that month and right. you don't have extra stuff. So like when you're like for us, our heat went out back in December, January, you don't just have the money to replace that. So you use firewood in your fireplace. And when my husband had to work, I took the kids and we went and stayed with my parents because it was cold. And that's just what you have to do because crossing a picket line is not an option. I mean, that's what the company wants. They've said that in negotiations, that they want to starve us out. They want to, they could afford to pay us what we're asking for. They could afford to do it. They just don't want to. So. Right. Uh, Of course. And, and, you know, the, the conservative response to this that I hear all the time is like, well, why don't you just get a different job or why don't you cross the picket line? Um, to you know, I I was talking to somebody whose parent had scabbed before, and and she said, well, he had kids to feed, and and, and it's like, well, why do you think that people, 
why do you think people went on strike in the first place? You know, what what do you say? I'm sure that especially now having been on strike a year that there are people in your life that have asked you, you know, why don't y'all just get a different job and just leave the company or why don't you cross the picket line? What do you say to them? Why would you give up things that people felt and for mine workers died for? Think about Blair Mountain. Think about Mad One. Think about all of these people that fought to have these safety measures in place for you, that fought for you to have a living wage, that fought for things to be like they are now that people just take advantage of, that they think that that's just a guarantee. It's disrespectful to history. It's disrespectful for all those people that fought. UMWA was one of the first integrated unions. Before segregation, before all that, they were like, no, we're all the same. We're all equal. We're all union brothers and sisters. That's what a union does. So I'm going to fight for that, that all workers are valuable. And besides your political lines, besides your ethnicity, besides your race, your sexuality, a union gives you the protection and it makes you a family. Those things don't matter anymore. And that has been a beautiful thing about the strike is seeing people that do have such different political ideologies, such different backgrounds, coming together and fighting for a common purpose. And that makes some people afraid. Because if you can put all those things aside and you can fight for what's good for everyone, what else could you change besides a contract? Right. Right. Amen. Uh, So the last thing that – Adam, were were you about to say something? No, I I just – was saying amen back here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, uh, preach it, sister. The the last thing that I wanted to ask you about is the mine workers' support for the um, the Amazon Union campaign. Um, folks that that regularly tune into the channel will know that Braxton um, voted yes live on the DSA for UMWA fundraising live stream here on the Valley Labor Reports YouTube channel. Uh, that was very cool. Um, so you know, some of the people that um, that are on strike at the mine have gotten a part-time job at Amazon. Um, what has that? What has that been like being a part of the two most important labor struck uh, labor struggles, certainly in Alabama in modern history and potentially in the United States at the same time? What is that like? I think at this point, for a lot of us, it's just come become so much a part of our life that. You just expect you don't understand why other people aren't doing that. Like, mm. why weren't you at the rally is more like how we're looking at it from our right. side. Like, why would you not want to support workers who are trying to form a union? And I love to say we had like 50 something people there at the rally, you know, last Saturday for RWDSU. And we're changing from the mine workers. Yes, we had. Yeah. So That's um, awesome. Brian Stanton, which is the international financial secretary, he spoke, Larry Spencer spoke, and Braxton spoke at the rally. And what we wanted them to see is like, hey, we've been on strike for 11 months and we're still fighting. Mm -hmm. But with solidarity within the labor movement, even though we've been fighting 11 months, we still have the strength to come and fight for you all too. That's just because we're fighting we're still going to support you in your struggle. And that's what mutual aid is. That's what the whole labor movement should be about is that we all come together and we support each other. And when you see that happen, it's a beautiful thing. And I would love to see some more organizing going on in Alabama. If other people want to organize, we'll be there to stand up for them too. 
Absolutely. I'm looking forward to uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward and, and hopeful for an explosion of just that here in the state and across the south and across the country. Uh, Hayden, thank you so much for your time and uh, for all the work that you put in for the people of Alabama. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Bye. Um, so the you know, we have been <clears throat> we've been continuing to talk about this anti protest bill and and hopefully i think i I just wanted to i wanted to do this uh and then and then hopefully uh we'll be able to stop talking about it for the rest of the session and and until it comes up again next year (laughs) but yeah inevitably uh, some form of it um so these clips are about a week old or maybe a week and a half old but but i've been sitting on them because um, they happened right after we recorded our, our last conversation with Yaffe, um, and and he just he just continues to be wrong about the <laughs> about the anti protest bill. Um, so let's let's just go ahead and jump into that first clip uh, from from Yaffe that I've got for us, Adam. And for those of you who maybe aren't familiar, just a reminder: uh, when he's talking about Yaffe, he's talking about a local uh, conservative news host or, or conservative talk radio host just wanted to throw that out there and the thing is they look at the world differently now every day on the show every day in my life I, I have a couple of bracelets that are supporting police one says back the blue another one is similar to that that i'm wearing right now that has the blue line and um sort of the american flag kind of thing supporting the police and that's really the difference. If you talk with someone like Chris England, they really believe that there is a problem. There are a lot of police officers that are going to abuse their power in such a way and do things that are racist. I don't believe that. Right. So, <laughs> so you know, so uh, wonder why folks <laughs> might be believing that. I, I, I'm just curious. Yeah. Um, Bless his heart. <laughs> I mean, that's that's about all I got to say about him. Just, you know. Yeah. Bless him. Yeah. I mean, the the reason that we're concerned about cops abusing power that they're given is because uh, we we live in reality. You know, turns live- out it happens. Yeah. Um, and to deny that is to yeah deny reality. Uh, and again, I, I just cannot overlook the irony of don't tread on me, small government people who are such fans of the police. They literally wear bracelets about them. Yeah. Um, there's something fascinating there about that mindset uh whatever ideological and personal experiences led to that conclusion Mm -hmm. it's it's bizarre that's that's america though i suppose that's that's alabama for us that's that's a yeah i mean it's just it's 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 as if those of us who have been critical of this bill or who you know have been talking about uh, criminal justice reform more broadly are are conspiracy theory folks uh, that we're conspiracists that we we might actually think that cops would do bad things. I mean, th- we live in the uh, you know we live in a world where black folks in Madison County 
are 11 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana than white folks, despite the fact that we know that we know that white folks and black folks smoke pot at the same rate. We live in a world where in Madison County, during the protest in 2020, there was no property damage at all from the protesters, and there was damage to property by the cops, and there was damage to people by the cops. Everybody saw that picture of a fellow's leg that had a hole blown in it uh, by the police at, from the protests. I know that guy. And he has tr- he had trouble walking uh, uh, a year later. Still had trouble walking because he had a hole blown in his calf muscle. I- I'm reminded of that uh, the mom, the you know middle-aged Grissom High School band mom, who also uh, was hit across uh, – wasn't it across her, the back of her legs, I believe, was hit by one of these uh, munitions. Uh, I, just, I just remember vividly mm-hmm. the images of her in the – I think it was the parking garage downtown. Yeah. I mean it's just – it's insane – um, and, and he goes on, he, he went on in that clip to talk about um, how when he's worried about power, he's worried about people at the top, not the law enforcement officers. And it's like, that's a silly thing to say. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you can you can do both. And, yeah. and that's something that's also, uh, you know, one of the most frustrating things about politics is this idea that you can't hold like more than one idea in your head at the same time. Um yeah, I mean, we should be critical of those in power. That's hell. That's half the point of this show. Um, but we shouldn't dispute the fact that even a rank and file officer, however you know subject they are to the laws, because they don't write the laws, they don't decide exactly how the department will focus its priorities. But at the end of the day, if you were pulled over, if you are stopped by a law enforcement officer. There is a dramatic difference in power relations. Right. One person has a gun and a badge and handcuffs and a nightstick and the ability to beat you, to seize your property. And to to kill you if they see you – they see a legally owned gun in your car. Or if you reach for your sunglasses. Yeah. You reach for your sunglasses or you reach for your ID and, and, you know, you didn't – uh, give them enough warning, um, or perhaps you're suicidal and you reach out for help. Um, you know, this it's it's really it's pretty disgusting. Uh, you know, there and I think about Representative Treadway. He's you know very concerned about demonization of police, and I get that nobody wants to be hated for the job they do, but uh, nobody has a song that says "F the firefighters." Right. Um, I wonder why. Maybe I... there's a reason for that. Shout out to a friend of mine who <laughs> who reminded me of that after listening to a, our interview from last week. <laughs> there is no F the firefighters. NWA did not right. debut that hmm. uh, in the 90s. There, Yeah. Probably no lessons to be learned from that, though. Um, <laughs> so, let's go ahead and go to the next, cl- uh, the next segment. We're going to talk about 
last week in Southern Labor. What happened last week in Southern Labor? Um, this is a segment that we do uh, a little rapid fire um, announcements about what happened in the labor movement in the South last week. We pull this from Jonah Furman's newsletter, Who Gets the Bird? You can read the full newsletter where he talks about everything that happened in the U.S. labor movement. Uh, WhoGetsTheBird.substack.com is where you can find that. In, so uh, we're going to go ahead and get to last week in Southern Labor. In new organizing, 343 more Starbucks workers at 14 stores have officially filed for NLRB elections with Workers United, including five stores in the South in Farmville, Springfield, and Richmond, Virginia, and Jacksonville and Hilea, Florida. 35 journalists at the Charlotte, North Carolina Observer are organizing with the Washington Baltimore News Guild. 40 guards in New Orleans are joining UGSO. SPFPA is raiding a unit of six guards at L'Enfant Plaza in D.C., who are currently represented by LEOSU. 200 airline mechanics for Lafsana in Aguadillo, Puerto Rico. Will join. Uh, will vote on joining the machinists after a decision from the National Mediation Board. They'll have nearly two months to vote, and we'll know the results on May the fifth. Over a thousand Hershey workers in Stewart Strath, Virginia, are voting on unionizing this week, as Michael Sonato at the Guardian and More Perfect Union are covering. We'll know the results in late March, and apparently. Apparently, this is this is you know this is just a big show for Jacob correcting the record on things he misspoke about uh, because I could have sworn that the workers at Hershey pulled the petition because of the anti-union campaign, but apparently not. Apparently, I totally made that up, and so I apologize to everybody who I misled about that. But I could have sworn that I saw that, but apparently not, because I looked I looked all over. I spent like 20 minutes yesterday looking for it, and I could not find anything about them pulling the petition. So the vote's still on, and we're going to know the, the results later this month. Um, there's a new front opening in the independent contractor debate, and it's not port, dr- uh, port truckers or Uber drivers, but Atlanta opera hair and makeup workers who are vying to join IATSE, IATSE, with management claiming they're not really employees. Now it's in the NLRB's hands. That's in- been one of the major trends of misclassifying folks as independent contractors, so that yep. would definitely be interesting to see how it pans out. Yep, yep. That is, yeah, de- definitely uh, looking forward to seeing. Hopefully that is resolved in favor of the workers. Um, in strikes and bargaining, there are lots of updates on oil workers, the steel workers, and the marathon-led table of big oil employers have announced a tentative agreement covering 30,000 refinery workers about a month after the last contract expired. According to Reuters, the deal is for a 12% raise over four years, which is not an improvement from the last agreement that they had, which was 9% over three years. Do you see how that's not any better? You get 12% over four years versus 9% over three years. That's the same, just over a longer contract. So it's going to be interesting to see what uh, 
the rest of that contract has, if it's any better at all. In just the past four weeks since their contract expired, Texas crude oil prices have swung up by between 3 and 7%. And with the Russian war on Ukraine likely to continue to spike those prices, plus a newfound patriotic interest in onshoring oil production, it seems like a huge missed opportunity to not get more of that money in workers' pockets, especially when workers are strike ready. But then again, this is an industry that has been openly talking about busting its unions and has taken on high-profile lockout actions against hundreds of workers from Minnesota to Texas over the past year. Uh, Speaking of which, Exxon workers in Beaumont, Texas, will go back to work next week after 10 months with Steelworkers Local 13243, who voted 60% by a vote of 60% to accept the deal that, as far as Jonah can tell, is a loss on the seniority and scheduling issue that was part of the core of the conflict that sparked in May. Another huge energy company, Kinder Morgan, is apparently planning on locking out its 160 steelworkers members at a terminal in Pasadena, Texas, over a rejected contract due to overtime and scheduling concerns, which is to say the energy industry continues to be aggressively organizing against its workers. 450 members of Steelworkers Local 40 in Huntington, Virginia, Huntington, West Virginia, still have no deal on the table with special metals after 150 days on strike. A few weeks after 15,000 teachers in Puerto Rico struck for a pay increase after 13 years of no raises to their base pay of 1750 a month, after after a few days The governor announced a temporary $1,000 monthly increase starting in July, but the teachers have kept on marching. Other public workers have joined in the protest to challenge low salaries and other jobs, including firefighters who haven't seen a raise in over two decades. The teachers plan to strike intermittently and held a national strike last week as they challenge sweeping austerity measures on the island from reductions in services to cuts in pensions. In political fights, the Charlottesville, Virginia City Council rejected a collective bargaining ordinance being pushed by transit workers as workers go jurisdiction by jurisdiction to win collective bargaining rights in Virginia. Joe Biden named his new Supreme Court nominee, Katanji Brown Jackson, and national union leaders are happy about it. Though, to be fair, I think we would have seen pretty similar statements no matter the nominee, as long as it wasn't J. Michelle Childs. <laughs> AFGE is pushing on the Biden administration to move the Department of Homeland Security to fulfill its promise of extending collective bargaining rights to TSA agents. Uh, and so that's what happened last week in Southern Labor. If you want to see what happened in the rest of U.S. Labor, you can read Jonah Furman's newsletter, who gets the bird.substack.com. Could not recommend it more. Absolutely. And uh, worth mentioning those outside the South, uh, and you would see this if you subscribe to Jonah's newsletter, is that teachers and uh, the support staff of both Minneapolis and St. Paul school districts up there in Minnesota, they have taken a strike vote. They are ready to strike if uh, they cannot secure a contract, and I believe the deadline is at the end of this upcoming week. So... By next weekend, we'll see if we have teachers on strike up in Minnesota. And that that will we'll be see. huge. That I mean, these be. are two very major school districts. So 
I know there have not been as many labor battles with teachers, at least in the United, you know, continental United States, it seems. Uh, but, you know, you mentioning Puerto Rico definitely brought that to my mind. And there's been a tremendous amount of organizing efforts in Puerto Rico. And just a reminder to folks, they are a colony of the United mm-hmm. States Empire. Yeah. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, we ought to consider them Southerners. Absolutely. They are part of our district in AFGE. So, um, Did you all know – And oh, and by the way, our phone line is still open. If you want to call in, the phone number is 844-899-TVLR. We got our phone number basically for this purpose so that we can continue to take calls after we go off the radio. That way we're not tied to the station. So if you want to call in, feel free. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR, 844-899-8857. Um, did you all know that in January, the child poverty rate increased by nearly 50%? That's crazy. That's crazy, right? For the past year or so, American families received payments of 250 per month for children ages 6 to 17 and 300 per month for those under 6 to most families in the country. This greatly improved the lives of working families. According to one analysis by the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, 91% of low-income families used their monthly benefit on these basic needs. Food clothing, school supplies, utility bills, and rent. Those are not luxury vehicles. (laughs) Uh, Less often, families spent the benefits on vehicle payments, again, not luxury vehicle payments, child care, or to pay down their old debts. Uh, The six monthly child tax credit payments of 2021 appeared to cut food insufficiency Uh, I'm sorry, the six monthly child tax credit payments of 2021 appear to cut food insufficiency among families by 26%. Okay? I mean, that's huge. And of course, Republicans were completely opposed to this provision, saying that it might be a disincentive to work. For one, there hasn't been any evidence of that at all that they can point to. And in fact, many recipients say that this benefit has helped them cover costs for child care, making it easier for them to go to work, or has helped them cover uh, costs for education so that they can get a better job. From an interview on NPR, $500 a month isn't nearly enough reason to quit looking for a job, says Jess Hudson, a single mother of two in the San Francisco Bay Area. I can't live on that. It was enough to give me child care help so I could finish school, so I could get a job, so I can participate in the economy in the ways that I want to do. But for two, like in my opinion, so what if it was a disincentive to work, right? Like, isn't that good? I mean, I thought Republicans were supposed to be the party of family values and, you know, women staying in the kitchen. Of course, women and men should be free socially to work or not in the context of raising a family. But I know that my mom went part time when I was born so that she could raise me and my sister. Uh, My grandparents kept us two days a week, and those were the two days a week that she worked. And it was really beneficial for us. We really liked it. Uh, You know, 
at least better than going to work three more days a week, certainly. <laughs> so, like, why the hell shouldn't we give working mothers and fathers the option to raise kids themselves? Like, I think it would be good if we gave working families enough money that it was a disincentive to work, frankly. Well, you're starting to talk about family values now. Yeah, I mean... Real family values. It, it really is... It really is wild. Um... So, you know, Republicans got what they wanted last month when working Alabama families and working families across the country stopped getting those payments. And I do want to put out just a little tidbit. This seems pretty minor in the grand scheme of things, but the the cutoff for those ages was based on at the end of the year. In other words, whether you got $250 or $300 per child, depending on how old was the child, December 31st. So if you are a child such as mine who turned six um, in December, well, then that means 250 per month for the entire duration of the program. And it's little things like that that, you know, I know I'm sure if you're a legislator or, you know, a staffer working on these programs or, you know, pieces of legislation, that may not seem like a big deal. But I know for me and, and certainly any other families in my situation, that $50 a month may, you know, could have mm-hmm. certainly helped. Uh, that would have paid a bill for me. Right. And it seems kind of silly that, you know, a child that's five for uh, like 350 out of 365 days of the year gets the benefit of a six-year-old child. Seems weird. Uh, seem, yeah. You know, I, I'm sure they're – come on now. It's – 2022, we can come up with a, a better way to do these kinds of cutoffs um, so that it's not – because I feel like what happens is that people are so frequently on the short end of the stick of little things like that hmm. that just you know colors their perception of government and, and also the folks behind these programs. I mean, yes, I'm, I'm certainly grateful that I got 250 a month, but – yeah, it would have been better to get 300. Uh, so I'm just throwing that out there because I think it's easy to forget how many times folks get caught up in those situations. And, um, you know, the but what you're getting at really, like I said, is, is family values. Do folks have the resources to actually raise a family? And I, I agree. I think if, you know, whether it's a mom or dad wants to be a stay-at-home parent, if you say you support that, then put your money where your mouth is. Yeah. Allow people to be able to do that. I mean, I I would love to be a stay-at-home dad. I don't know how my wife would feel about that, but <laughs> I would love to be a stay-at-home dad. And, uh, you know, have extra time to work with my child, whether we, mm-hmm. you know, maybe I'd homeschool, maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I'd just have extra time to make sure, you know, that she's keeping track in school. and. Right do all the things that is required of a household because you know that invisible labor uh of housework of cooking and cleaning and laundry and all that it adds up mm-hmm. yeah and I, I mean it, it's just i i do i absolutely do think that we should have some sort of family stimulus that is a disincentive to work i think that we should be disincentivizing uh, parents from working. I, you know, I don't think we should have a society where both parents feel like they have to work 
50 to 60 hours a week yeah. to make ends meet. Like, I just don't think that's a society that we should have to live in uh, or that we have to, you know. It would we be, don't have to. Yeah, we don't yeah, have we don't to. Have I mean, to. it would be one thing if, like, that's literally what it took to make society run. But they, but it's not. That's not it. We've got the money. We've got the resources. And we've got the time to do it. It's just everything is, is concentrated at the top. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way at all. And, and you know, like I said, my mom uh, only worked two days a week until I was like 16, probably. Until I was like, you know. I was I was I was significantly on up in age before my mom and my sister's four years younger than me, but I think it helped us, and I, I'm sure my mom enjoyed it, and and uh, you know, I'm in a pretty long term relationship at this point. We're looking towards, uh, you know, we're looking towards moving in together, and there's uh, some some conversations about like what we want to do when and if we start a family, and you know. Fortunately for us, I have a decent paying union job where I feel confident that um, that if we do have children, that she can go part time and and that she can do something that that my mom did. And I, I think, you know, I think she'll like that. I think our kids will like that. I think I'll like that. And and like people should be able to do that. People should be able to do that. And I don't know, I, you know. Call me crazy. Yeah, and, and you know that's where, and of course, I have a way of always connecting everything about to, back to education. But there is a real tangible and and well researched difference when kids have parents who can spend time with them, uh, parents who can spend time with them in general, but also spend time with them reading and and making sure homework is completed, checking on their grades, uh, you know, being able to provide transportation and support to after school activities because you know it's the kids who maybe only have one parent or who only have parents who are working 50 60 hours a week they have a lot harder time participating in clubs and extracurriculars and sports and band and all the things that you know help you to be a well-rounded kid and ultimately a well-rounded adult um and, and i know it's just it's just so hard. Those of us who are parents who are working, it's just so hard to to be away, and, right. and it's so hard on the kids. Um, and you know, when you have young kids talking to you about it, it's you know incredibly heartbreaking. Uh, so it is so sad that here we had a brief little moment where we were actually moving in the right direction. Uh, no, it wasn't enough. And no, it wasn't right, you know, some of the ways they implemented the program, you know, in, such as the example I gave in my situation. But it was a step in the right direction. And, yeah, it absolutely mm-hmm. helped. It, it it was a major help for my family and I know for so many others. And uh, I couldn't imagine. I only have one child. I couldn't imagine having multiple, you know, two, three, four kids right now, It especially with the way prices are going up. It just would be uh, – Seems like low hanging fruit to try right. to get a renewed child tax credit or some sort of family, you know, ongoing family family stimulus, something along those lines, and mm-hmm. and that that's real family values right there. Put your money where your mouth is. Support people so that they can support their families. 
And we had a good comment in the chat that said uh, the multiplier effect of the dollar means that they build their communities as that turns over and over again in uh, you know, right. in, in working communities. And, and you know, that's that's absolutely right. true. You know, uh, a parent who hasn't been able to get their kids new shoes for a while, now maybe they had a little bit of extra money this month and they could afford to get them some new shoes. And now yep. the shoe store just got another sale. You know, it, it goes on and on. And but that's really a way of looking at economics in a different way. Instead of the trickle up, I mean, trickle down, it's more of a bottom up method, right? Which is common sense, or at least it was common sense for you know decades. Uh, but we have definitely moved away from that to the point where if you listen to you know marketplace and these other econ themed <laughs> shows, um, or CNBC, those type of programs. Sometimes they're explicit about it. Sometimes they're they're more coy about it. But more or less, their message is often that if workers have too much money, if families have too much money, oh well, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've talked about that with inflation and how rising wages are, are getting a lot of the blame for inflation. Right. Um, it's it, it is it's just. It's sad. Uh, it's sad because, as you said, we don't have to do it this way. And it's not just using our imagination. Hell, just look across the across the world uh, and how so many other countries better support folks who are trying to have a family. Uh, you know, whether it's the support given to pregnant women uh, and to newborns, uh, whether it's the you know, support for folks to have paid family medical leave where they can actually stay home. Uh, I was blessed that when my daughter was born, I had a union contract and parental leave was part of that. And I was able to take some extra time, not as much time as I probably should have taken, honestly. Mm. Uh, I didn't use all the time I could have taken because I felt like so many workers that, you know, I had to get back back to the grind Right. Uh, you know, I would have done it differently in hindsight, but those are the sorts of things that really do make a difference with folks' families, not who's going into what bathroom and, uh, right. you know, all that kind of garbage that you hear about in terms of family values. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are right at three hours now. Uh, I did have Woo. a clip. Uh, I, I had a clip from Hershey's about contract negotiations uh but i think we can save that i think so i'd like to for us to do a little more deep dive maybe on this hershey's situation and see what's been going on there yep all right well folks that is going to be it thanks for tuning in and sticking with us we really do appreciate it please um, like and subscribe like uh, and all that subscribe stuff we, we sometimes share. forget to to throw that in there but you know the algorithms are they're there for better or worse, mostly worse, and they're not always uh, the most friendly to content such as ours. So, and Jacob, I think there was some issue with Ben Burgess and his show the other day with YouTube, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah. you know, anything <laughs> folks can do to support the program, of course, financial contributions are great, but if you can just share it with your friends and family, if you can subscribe to it so that our numbers are higher and therefore more people see it, all those kind of little things, they really do help. Yep. And, uh, so and we've got a really cool hat. We do have a cool hat. Pre-orders are still happening for about a week, yep, I believe. So week. We're going to put the order in on March 11th. So. 
All right, folks, that's going to be it. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller, and we will see you next week. <laughs>